Welcome to The Reality Revolution. I'm your host, Brian Scott. Today I wanted to go a little further in discussion of integrating the shadow. We've talked about the shadow on several episodes. It's an important thing to understand. We learned from Quo that integrating the shadow is an important part of the spiritual process. I did an episode called The Shadow of the Smaller Self, and in that we talked a little bit more about the shadow is really just a shadow of the smaller self when you look at it from a larger perspective. But it is helpful to integrate the shadow, and I wanted to discuss it further on an academic basis. It's interesting if you go and look at psychotherapies, all the different therapies, and what these things are, you try to see what they say about integrating the shadow or letting it go, dealing with these sort of things with our psyche. Starting with Freud, who basically said that our desires are all unconscious, that we don't have control over them because they are part of our unconscious and their neuroses or mental illness result from these real desires that we have that are unconscious. At the beginning, it was about sex, and then later it was about love and aggression. And later on in his life, he stated that our desires came from our fears of life and death. The shadow level is where we start from and we're evolving to another level of mind we are on a level which is the shadow level there's a reason that we talk about the shadow because it is part of our moving away from an understanding of our conscious state and the way that we interact in the world right now together in learning through works like Paul Selig and the guides and different teachers and people like Dr. Joe Dispenza, together as a community, we are beginning the psychological path of involution, of return to the source, of remembrance of mind, the descent of the spectrum of consciousness. Ken Wilber discusses a spectrum of consciousness that you move through that are paths on your evolutionary scale. And we start with the shadow and the ego, and that's the beginning levels that we move through. And eventually we move to an existential level, a transpersonal level, a level of the mind, different levels of consciousness that we're going through. And so first we have to deal with this naturally as a part of a natural evolution in consciousness now, to make full use of the methods for integrating the shadow it would be best to recall how it is generated how is this shadow the way we're talking about it created the shadow is that dark part of you that you push away that you ignore that's in your unconscious and that oftentimes it implies some part of you that you don't like that you're ashamed of, that you haven't forgiven, that perhaps is aggressive or evil or wicked or perverse, some part of you that you haven't come into grips with or an understanding of, which is really the same process that we're going through as a society as a whole. 
when we understand that all are one, we look out and we see these terrible people, Jeffrey Dahmer, Adolf Hitler, and we say, that's not me. Those are human beings, just like we are human beings and they are a part of us. There's a dark shadow that we push away. Sometimes by integrating the shadow, understanding it, some amazing things can happen generally. With the quaternary dualism, repression, projection, the ego is severed. Its unity is repressed. And the shadow, which originally was a part of the ego, is now projected as foreign, alien, or disowned. Generally, we can think of the shadow as our, all of our ego potentials, the potentials of our ego with which we have lost contact, that we have forgotten, that we have disowned. Thus, the shadow can contain not only our bad, aggressive, perverse, wicked, evil, and demonic aspects that we have tried to disown, but also some good, energetic, godlike, angelic, and noble aspects that we have forgotten belong to us. Although we attempt to disown and alienate these aspects, they nevertheless remain our own. And the gesture is ultimately as futile as trying to deny our elbows. And just because these facets do remain our own, they continue to operate and we therefore continue to perceive them. But since we believe that they are not ours, we see them as belonging to other people. We have therefore read our own qualities into other people to such an extent that we have lost track of them in ourselves. On the ego level, this alienating of certain aspects of ourself has two basic consequences. One, we no longer feel these aspects are ours, and so we can never use them, act upon them, satisfy them. Our base of action is thus drastically narrowed, reduced, and frustrated. Two, these facets now appear to exist in the environment. We have given our energy to others, and so that energy now seems to turn on us, to boomerang. We lose it in ourselves and we see it in the environment where it threatens our being. In the words of psychiatrist G.A. Young, in this process, the individual will make himself less than he is and the environment more than it is. We end up clobbering ourselves with our own energy. As Fritz Perls, founder of Gestalt Therapy, puts it, once a projection has occurred, or once we have projected some potential, then this potential turns against us. How our projected energy or potential turns against us can be easily seen when we start to examine the way our reality is created. That is why this is something that is important to talk about in our ongoing study of reality creation Suppose, for example, that an impulse or push to action arises within the self, in your thoughts, such as the impulse to work, to eat, to study, to play. Now, what would this impulse or drive to action feel like if due to the dualism that you're in, we projected this push or drive? This drive would still arise, but we would no longer feel that it belonged to us the drive would now appear to arise externally to us in the environment. And we would therefore no longer feel a drive towards the environment, but the environment driving us. 
Instead of pushing to action, we would feel pushed into action. Instead of having drive, we would feel driven. Instead of interest, we would be experiencing pressure in place of desire, obligation. Our energy remains ours, but because of the dualism, its source appears external to us. And so instead of possessing this energy, we feel hammered by it, buffeted and slammed around by what now appears to be external forces so that we are driven mercilessly like a helpless puppet with the environment apparently pulling the strings. This is discussed in reality transurfing. It's what happens when you try to push too hard and the reality pushes back when you don't have that understanding. Moreover, we can project not only our positive emotions of interest, drive, and desire, but also our negative feelings of anger, resentment, hatred, rejection. Now, if we believe what they say psychologically and what Neville implies in one lecture on dreams, it is possible that we are creating our reality from our unconscious state. Part of what we're trying to do when we meditate and discuss some of this stuff is to move from the unconscious state into the conscious state because we are creating stuff we're not even aware that we're creating in our unconscious. The shadow may be doing a lot of creating that we're not aware of or driving us into different timelines because of those particular motivations that we have we end up in a different sort of timeline than we would want to be in now from what i was saying before we can project our positive emotions or our negative emotions the same thing results however instead of being angry at something we will feel the world is angry at us instead of temporarily hating a person we will sense that the person hates us instead of rejecting a situation we will feel rejected Becoming unaware of our little bit of negative tendencies, we project them onto the environment and thus populate our world with imaginary but quite frightening boogeymen, devils, ghosts. We're frightened by our own shadows. A lot of times when you hear politicians or people projecting, complaining about a particular person, they're projecting what's deep inside of them that they would do themselves Besides projecting positive and negative emotions, we can also project positive and negative ideas or qualities or traits onto a person. When a person projects his positive qualities of value and self-worth onto another person, he has surrendered some of his own goodies and sees them residing in the other individual. This person therefore feels that he is worthless compared to this other individual who now appears as a superman, possessing not only his own goodies, but also those projected onto him. This projection of positive tendencies and ideas happens frequently in romantic love, so that the person in love gives all his potentials to his beloved and then is overwhelmed by the supposed goodness, wisdom, beauty, etc. of the beloved. Nevertheless, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and the person who is romantically in love is really in love with the projected aspects of his own self and he believes that the only way he can reown those projected goodness of himself is to own and possess his beloved the same mechanism is operating in cases of wild admiration and envy for again 
we have given our potentials away, consequently feeling that we ourselves lack them, and seeing them instead as belonging to others. We become worthless, and the world appears to be populated with people who are capable, important, awesome in our eyes. Similarly, we can project negative qualities, consequently feel ourselves to lack them, and instead see them as belonging to others. This is a most common occurrence because our natural tendency when faced with an undesirable aspect of ourselves is simply to deny it and push it out of our consciousness. This, of course, is a futile gesture for these negative ideas nevertheless remain our own. And we can only pretend to get rid of them by seeing them in other people. So think about that. When you see terrible things in other people, it's because you rejected them in yourself. So we need to find a way to integrate the shadow. The witch hunt is on. Communists under every bed. The devil is waiting at every corner. The good guys versus the bad guys. Us versus them. Our impassioned fight with the devils of this world is nothing but elaborate shadow boxing. That's all it is. To those unfamiliar with the projection on the ego level, this mechanism initially seems most perplexing and occasionally ridiculous, for it implies that those things which most disturb us in other people are really unrecognized aspects of ourselves. This idea is usually met with resentful, bitter opposition, yet as Freud pointed out, violent denial is the very mark of projection. That is, if we didn't deny it, we wouldn't be projecting. The fact remains, however, that it takes one to know one, and our carping criticisms of others are really nothing but unrecognized bits of autobiography. If you want to know what a person is really like, listen to what they say about other people. Some of this stems from Freud's original insight that all emotions are intrapsychic and intrapersonal, not interpsychic and interpersonal. That is to say, emotions are experienced, on the ego level at least, not between me and you, but between me and me. The so-called neuroses thus result with the arising of the dualism, the dualistic nature within us, or the integrity of the ego level is severed, its unity repressed, and then certain facets projected onto the environment around us. With this projection, we disown and alienate some of our own tendencies. We forget about them. And then forget we have forgotten them. So therapy on the ego level, therefore, entails a remembering and reowning of our forgotten tendencies, a re-identifying with our projected facets, a reuniting with our shadows, so when I started to read about this, I found that I didn't like that because of what I've learned about reality creation. I don't want to have to go and reimagine these things that had happened in my past. And it's a real question I want to ask. It's the nature of some of these psychotherapies to go back and experience them. And I'm not arguing that you push them away, but it is an ongoing tendency in the therapeutic community is to do that 
in the words of Dr. Pearls, much material that is our own, that is part of ourselves, has been dissociated, alienated, disowned, thrown out. The rest of potential is not available to us, but I believe most of it is available, but as projections. I suggest we start with the impossible assumption that whatever we believe we see in another person or in the world is nothing but a projection. We can reassimilate. We can take back our projections by projecting ourselves completely into that other thing or person. We have to do the opposite of alienation. We have to identify. Let us give several examples to fully clarify these points. First of all, projection of positive emotions, such as interest, desire, drive, motivation, eagerness, excitement. Say John has a date with Mary. He's terribly excited about it and eagerly looks forward to picking her up at her house. As he rings the doorbell, he's trembling slightly with excitement. But when her father opens the door, John gets panicky and very nervous. He forgets his original excitement about meeting with Mary. And consequently, instead of being interested in the environment, he feels that the environment, especially Mary's father, is interested in him. Instead of looking, he feels looked at. And then it seems that the situation is very much zeroed in on him. John is clobbering himself with his own energy. Although he will probably blame it on the environment in this case. The evil eye stare of Mary's father. Nevertheless, there is nothing in the situation per se that causes nervousness. For many men positively love meeting parents and trying to get to know them. The tangle lies not in this situation, but in John himself. Besides clobbering himself with his own energy, John will end up in a vicious circle for, as in all projections on the ego level, the more he projects, the more he will tend to project. The more he forgets his excitement, the more he projects it. And thus, the more the environment seems zeroed in on him. This increases his excitement, which he again projects, making the environment seem even more zeroed in on him, causing him yet more excitement. The only way to get out of this uncomfortable situation is for John to regain his interest, to re-identify with his excitement and thus act upon it instead of being acted upon it. Usually this will occur as Mary walks into the room. John instantly regains his interest and acts upon it by rushing over to greet her, thereby integrating his alienated interest for he is now looking at the environment instead of being looked at by it. The moment John began to feel panic and anxiety, he was losing touch with his basic biological excitement. He blocked it, disowned it, projected it. Under these conditions, excitement is experienced as anxiety and conversely, whenever we feel anxiety, we are simply refusing to let ourselves be excited, vibrant, and alive. The only way out of this type of situation is to get back in touch with our interest in excitement, to let our body get excited, to breathe, and even gasp deeply instead of tightening our chest and restricting our breathing to shake and vibrate with energy instead of playing cool and trying to hold back our excitement by stiffening and becoming uptight to let our energy mobilize and flow instead of damming it up whenever we feel anxiety we need only ask ourselves what am i excited about or how am i preventing myself from being naturally excited a child simply feels joyously excited but an adult feels uncomfortably anxious only because as the energy wells up adults shut it off and project it while children let it flow energy is eternal delight and children are eternally delightful at least until they are taught 
the quaternary dualism after which children as well as adults alienate their natural excitement. Energy continues to mobilize and well up, but thanks to the quaternary dualism, it appears to arise externally to us, where it takes on a threatening nature. Anxiety, then, is nothing but blocked and projected excitement and interest. This can most easily be experimented with when one is alone, for one can let go without fear of condescending comments from stuffy onlookers. If a feeling of anxiety is present, don't try to get rid of it. Alienate it even more, but instead, go into it fully. Shake, tremble, gasp for air, follow your bodily action. Get in touch with the anxiety by letting it explode into excitement. It's the NLP trick that I learned is taking the emotion and changing it into a positive one. It's transformative, it's powerful. Find the energy that wants to be born and feel it out completely for anxiety or sadness or depression is birth denied to excitement, to love. Give that energy birth, reown it, let it flow. Anxiety will yield to vibrant excitement if you let it, to energy freely mobilizing and directed outward instead of blocked and projected, boomeranging back on us as anxiety. Another example of the consequences of projecting a positive emotion, let us take the alienation of desire. Jack wants very much to clean out the garage. It's a mess, and he's been thinking about cleaning it for quite some time. Finally, he decides he'll do it this coming Sunday. At this point, Jack is very much in touch with his desire. He wants to get the job done, but when Sunday arrived, Jack starts to have second thoughts about the matter. He putters around for several hours, daydreams, fidgets about. He is starting to lose touch with his desire. Now that desire is still present, because if it weren't, Jack would simply leave the job and do something else. He still wants to do it, but is beginning to alienate and project that desire all he needs to really finish the projection is any available person onto which he can hang the projected desire. So when his wife pokes her head in and casually asks how the job is going, Jack snaps back that she should get off his back. He now feels that not he, but his wife, who wants him to clean the garage. The projection is completed. Jack starts to feel that she is pressuring him. But what he has actually experienced is his own projected desire for all pressure is nothing but displaced eagerness. At this point, most of us object that we are in situations that really do impose a tremendous pressure upon us, that pressure is due not to our projecting desire, but to the very nature of the situation itself, such as an office or job or family situation. And consequently, we seek not to integrate them, but to alienate them with the arising of the dualistic nature within us that creates the shadow. This alienation becomes possible, rather it seems to become possible, for although we deny these tendencies consciousness, they remain in our subconscious and unconscious minds nevertheless, and we push them from the conscious so they appear in our environment. It then seems that we lack them, but the environment is swarming with them. Actually, when we survey other people and are horrified by all the evils we see in them, we are but gazing unerringly into the mirror of our own souls. Egoic health and sanity thus demands 
that we reown and reintegrate these evil and negative tendencies. Once we've done so, a most startling thing happens. We discover that these negative tendencies we were so loath to admit in ourselves, once they are reintegrated, become harmoniously balanced with our positive tendencies and therefore lose their supposed evil coloring. In fact, these negative tendencies of hatred and aggression assume a really violent and evil nature only when we ignore them and alienate them, only when we separate from them their counterbalancing positive tendencies of love and acceptance and then fling them into the environment where, isolated from their balancing context, they can indeed appear most vicious and destructive. Check out my episode on Quo and the Balancing Exercise. And I asked the question, I didn't understand why I needed to integrate the bad things and the good things. And if I have felt excited during the day, I was supposed to feel the opposite of that. And this balancing effect affects the environment around us because as I understand this now, we're projecting the negative that we are trying to ignore. The more we enter into fourth density, we project the negative in our environment around us as we forget about it. And if we can just embrace this part of us, it goes away. We can fix the world by fixing this particular aspect of ourselves and integrating the shadow. And something I see all the time from people that are heavily into conspiracy, when we incorrectly imagine these demonic forces or aspects to actually exist in the environment, instead of realizing that they exist in us, as the necessary counterbalance of our constructive positive tendencies. When we do imagine they exist in the environment, then we react most violently and viciously to this illusory threat. Then we are driven into frenzies of frequently brutal crusading. Then do we kill witches for their own good, start wars to maintain peace, establish inquisitions to save souls? In short, an alienated and projected negative tendency because it is severed from its balancing context and given a life of its own can take on a very demonic nature and result in truly destructive actions. While that same tendency reintegrated in us and placed alongside its balancing positive tendency takes on a mellow and cooperative nature in this sense, it is a moral imperative that to be Christ-like one must befriend the devil. Further, we rarely realize that not only do good and evil tendencies balance one another when they are integrated, but also that like all opposites, they are necessary for one another. That not only does evil harmonize with good, but that evil itself doesn't really exist. is necessary for the existence of good, though. As Rilke puts it, if my devils are to leave me, I'm afraid my angels will take flight as well says Lao Tzu, is there a difference between yes and no? Is there a difference between good and evil? Must I fear what others fear? What nonsense! Having and not having arise together. Difficult and easy complement each other. Long and short contrast each other. High and low rest upon each other. Front and back follow one another. And Chengzu draws the conclusion, Thus those who say that they would have right without its correlate wrong, or good government without its correlate misrule, do not apprehend 
the great principle of the universe, nor the nature of all creation. One might as well talk of the existence of heaven without that of earth, or of the negative principle without the positive, which is clearly impossible, yet people keep on discussing it without stop. Such people must be either fools or knaves. People hate the darkness of their negative tendencies, just as children hate the darkness of the night. But just as if there was no dark of night, we would never recognize the light of day. So also, if we possessed no negative aspects, we would never recognize our positive ones. Our negative and positive tendencies are thus like the valleys and the mountains of a beautiful landscape. There can be no mountains without valleys, and vice versa, so that those who would misguidedly seek to annihilate the valleys must, in the same stroke, level the mountains, trying to rid ourselves of negative tendencies, trying to destroy them and eliminate them, would be a fine idea, if it were possible. The problem is that it is not, that the negative tendencies in ourselves, to which we try to shut our eyes nevertheless, remain firmly ours and return to plague us as neurotic symptoms of fear, depression, and anxiety. Cut off from consciousness, they assume menacing aspects, all out of proportion to their actual nature. We can tame evil only by befriending it, and we simply inflame it by alienating it. Integrated, evil becomes mellow, projected, it becomes quite vicious, and thus those who would seek to eliminate evil have added substantially to its victory. In the words of Ronald Fraser, let me ask you to remember someday that I have told you that the hatred of evil strengthens evil and opposition reinforces what is opposed. That is a law of an exactitude equal with the laws of mathematics. Just like what Vadim Zeeland teaches, when you go in opposition of the pendulum, you give it energy. So when you oppose it, then you give it energy. On a metaphysical level, there is a way for us to find this balance that is mostly good through the mellowing of evil by integrating it and understanding it, forgiving it. This is going to happen more and more as the Akashic record awakens and our awareness of everyone around us and what they have done in this life and past lives, being able to read their minds, see their lives, being completely able to access the Akashic, all of us at the same time. The shadow will become obvious. We will see the dark elements of our histories and what has happened. And we will learn that we need to find a way to integrate this shadow for us to come together as a social memory complex. Or from theologian Nicholas Berdyaev, Satan rejoices when he succeeds in inspiring us with diabolical feelings to himself. It is he who wins when his own methods are turned against himself a continual denunciation of evil and its agents merely encourages its growth in the world, a truth sufficiently revealed in the Gospels, but to which we remain persistently blind. As an example of the projection of negative emotions, let us begin with that of hatred. Martha is leaving home to attend a sophisticated girls' college in the East. While she was in high school, she was very much in touch with her negative emotions of hatred, so that this hatred was not at all of the violent or vicious type, but was rather mellow and easygoing, which we would call rascality, orneriness, whimsy, or gentle cynicism, 
This idea of gentle cynicism has always been characteristic of highly cultured and humane people, and in the fellowship of those who can let their hair down with each other and express the warmest friendship in such terms. Well, you old rascal, the whole possibility of loving affection between human beings depends upon the recognition and acceptance of an element of irreducible rascality in oneself and others. The power of fanaticism, effective as it may be, is always bought at the price of unconsciousness. And whether its cause be good or evil, it is invariably destructive because it works against life. It denies the ambivalence of the natural world. The point again is that when we are conscious of our little bit of hatred, it really isn't hatred as such, or it is blended and harmonized with our positive emotions of love and kindness, so that integrated hatred takes on very gentle and frequently humorous overtones for me personally. The more I add love to this hatred, it slowly goes away. Now, Martha, our example that we're giving, was in touch with her whimsical and devilish side, her integrated hatred, and so it formed a very constructive part of her character. But as she arrives at college, she is thrown in with an overly zealous, prim and proper group of friends where any expressions of whimsical rascality are looked upon with disdain. In a very short time, Martha starts to lose touch with her hatred and therefore she begins to project it. Hence, instead of whimsically and gently hating the world, she begins to feel the world is hating her. She predictably loses her sense of humor and has disquieted feelings that absolutely nobody likes her. I hate the world has become the world hates me. But where the former makes for a world of whim, the latter makes for a world of grim. Many of us go through life, or at least high school, feeling that nobody likes us. And we think this is terribly unfair because we, of course, dislike nobody. But these are precisely the two distinguishing marks of projection on the ego level. We see it in everybody else, but imagine ourselves to lack it. We feel that the world hates us only because we are unaware of the small part of ourselves that gently hates the world. The same general phenomenon occurs when we project such negative emotions as aggression, anger, and rejection. Instead of gently and humorously attacking the environment, we turn these emotions back on ourselves and then feel that the environment is maliciously attacking us. Aggression, for example, is a most useful personality trait when we are fully conscious of it, for it allows us to meet the environment and grapple with it effectively if we are not just to swallow everything we are told or all experiences that come to us, we must actively attack them, tear into them, thoroughly chew them, not maliciously, but with drive and interest. If you can realize the necessity for an aggressive, destructive, and reconstructive attitude toward any experience that you are really to make your own, you can then appreciate the need to evaluate aggressions highly and not to dub them glibly antisocial. As a matter of fact, violent anti-social aggressive acts are a result not of integrated aggression, but of suppressed and alienated aggression. For by holding it in, the forces of aggression greatly increase. Just as the tighter you clamp on the lid of the pressure cooker, the greater force of steam becomes until it finally results in violent explosion. Again, it appears a moral imperative to integrate and make conscious our aggressive tendencies. Yet most of us do just the opposite. We seek to deny our aggressive tendencies and push them out of the consciousness. It should be obvious by now, however, that these tendencies nevertheless remain our own and nevertheless continue to operate in us. 
we now experience them as if they are originating outside of us in the environment and consequently it appears that the world is attacking us in short we experience fear the projector is connected with his projected aggression by fear as projected excitement is felt as anxiety as projected desire is felt as pressure projected aggression is felt as fear well some of us might reply i certainly feel afraid at times but my problem is just that i'm not the aggressive type i often feel fear but i just never feel aggression precisely we don't feel aggression because we have projected it and are consequently feeling it as fear the very experience of fear is nothing but our masked feeling of aggression which we have turned back on ourselves we don't have to invent aggression it is already there as fear and so all we have to do is call fear by its correct name aggression thus the statement the world is emotionally attacking me is much more accurate if it read backwards if projected aggression is felt as fear then projected anger is felt as depression angry rejection of the world which we all experience at moments is useful in spurring us into constructive action but if it is alienated and projected we begin to feel that the world angrily rejects us under these circumstances the world looks very dark and understandably we become very depressed outrage becomes enrage as we turn anger back on ourselves and then suffer terribly mad has become sad and we become the depressed victims of our own anger the person who is depressed and need only ask himself what am i so mad at and then learn to spell sad correctly mad then there's the projection of positive qualities such as kindness or strength or wisdom and beauty besides projecting emotions we can also project personal traits qualities and characteristics onto other people so that we then feel that we lack these things in ourselves when these characteristics happen to be positive and good such as beauty or wisdom we feel ourselves awed by the number of supermen who seem to surround us for we have given them all of our power all of our talent all of our skill and then there's the projection of negative qualities such as prejudices snobbishness devilishness prudishness meanness just some people are super mean like the projection of negative emotions the projection of negative qualities is very common in our society i see it all the time just watch any political channel for we've been duped into equating negative with undesirable thus instead of befriending and integrating our negative traits we alienate and project them seeing them in everybody else but ourselves as always however they nevertheless remain ours all of us have blind spots tendencies and traits that we simply refuse to admit are ours that we refuse to accept and therefore fling into the environment where we muster all of our righteous fury and indignation to do battle with them blinded by our own idealism to the fact that the battle is within and the enemy is much nearer home and all it takes to integrate these facets is that we treat ourselves with the same kindness and understanding that we afford to our friends as young puts it the acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem in the epitome of a whole outlook upon life that i feed the hungry 
like forgive an insult that I love my enemy in the name of Christ. All these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all the poorest of all the beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What then? To summarize this and place it in context of the spectrum of consciousness, our energy mobilizes and wells up, passing through the energy centers. So we must become aware and keep in mind that any particular symptom of what's happening in our lives, it has an emotional nucleus. It's the visible form of a shadow which contains not only the opposite quality, but also the opposite direction. Thus, if I feel terribly hurt and mortally wounded because something Joe Johnson said to me, and I consequently am in agony, Although I consciously harbor nothing but goodwill toward Joe Johnson, the first step is to realize that I am doing this to myself, that literally I'm hurting myself, taking responsibility for my own emotions. I am now in a position to reverse the direction of the projection and to see that my feelings of being hurt are precisely my own desire to hurt X. I feel hurt by X finally translates correctly into I want to hurt X. Now this doesn't mean that I go out and thrash X to a pulp. The awareness of my anger is sufficient to integrate it. The point is that my symptom of agony reflects not only the opposite quality, but also the opposite direction. Hence, I will have to assume responsibility both of the anger and for the fact that the anger itself is from me towards X. In a sense, then we have first, in the case of projected emotions, to see that we thought the environment was doing to us is really something we are doing to ourselves that we are literally pinching ourselves and then as it were to see that this is actually our own disguised desire to pinch others and for the desire to pinch others substitute according to our own projections the desire to love others hate others touch others tense others possess others look at others murder others contact others take from others play with others dominate others deceive others elevate others you fill in the blank or rather let your shadow fill it. Now this second step of reversal is absolutely essential. If the emotion is not fully discharged in the correct direction, you will very quickly slip back into the habit of turning that emotion back on yourself. So as you contact an emotion such as hatred, every time you start to turn the hatred back on yourself, then play the opposite direction. Turn it out. That is now your choice to pinch or to be pinched, to look or to be looked at, to reject or to be rejected. Take back our projections is somewhat simpler, but not necessarily easier when it comes to projected qualities, traits, or ideas, because they do not themselves involve a direction, at least not as pronounced and as moving as that of the emotions, rather positive or negative traits such as wisdom, courage, bitchiness, wickedness, stinginess, and so on seem to be relatively much more static. Thus, we have only to worry about the quality itself not so much about any direction of the quality. Of course, once these qualities are projected, we may react to them in a violently emotional manner. And then we may even project these reactive emotions and then react to them 
and so in a dizzying whirl of shadow boxing, it may well be that no qualities or ideas are projected unless emotionally charged, but all that that is may considerably be reintegrated can nevertheless be accomplished if we simply consider the projected qualities by themselves. As always, the projected traits, just like the projected emotions, will be all those items we see in others that don't merely inform us but strongly affect us. Usually these will be the qualities that we imagine another to possess, and which we utterly loathe, qualities we are always itching to point out and violently condemn. Never mind that we are, but flinging our condemnations at our own little black heart, hoping thereby to exercise it. Occasionally the projected qualities will be of some of your own virtues, so that you cling to those unto whom you hang your goodies, frequently attempting to feverishly guard and monopolize the chosen person. The fever comes, of course, from the powerful desire to hold on to aspects of our own selves. In the last analysis, projections come in all flavors. In any case, these projected qualities, just like the projected emotions, will always be the opposite of those we consciously fancy ourselves to possess. But unlike the emotions, these traits themselves do not have a direction, and thus their integration is straightforward. In the very first step of playing your opposites, you will come to see that what you love or despise in others are only the qualities of your own shadow. It is not an affair between you and others, but between you and you. Playing your opposites, you touch the shadow, and in so understanding that you are pinching yourself, you stop. There is no direction to the projected traits themselves, and so their integration does not demand the second step of reversal. And so it is that through playing our opposites, through giving the shadow equal time, that we eventually extend our identity and thus our responsibility to all aspects of the psyche, and not just to the impoverished persona. In this fashion, the split between the persona and shadow is whole and healed, and in this fashion, I spontaneously evolve an accurate and therefore acceptable unitary self-image, that is to say an accurate mental representation of my entire psychosomatic organism. Thus my psyche is integrated, thus do I ascend from the level of shadow to that of the ego. Shadows below the ego, we're moving to the ego. You may think you have concerns about your ego right now, but if you haven't dealt with the shadow, you're still in the level of the shadow. I want you to try to understand this idea of projection, projecting your fears, thoughts onto others. I want you to understand how these projections may be coming from a part of you that you're denying. When you do that, it's understanding this bizarre thing about us that we project our environment around us based on what we don't want to have in ourselves. So we see anger, we see hate because we deny it in ourselves that we can let these things go. When we acknowledge that they're a part of us, when they come up and we acknowledge when they're a part of our reactions and what we do, we can let them go. They can be a part of our existence that we acknowledge, but they're completely insignificant. Something we don't even talk about anymore because we then are able to move beyond the limited ego self. Once we move from the level of ego, after we move from the shadow to the ego, we can move to the higher level of self. The smaller self is the one that has the shadow. So once it's integrated, then you have to integrate the ego into the larger self, which is who you really are. That's the place that you want to end up in this process 
of integrating the shadow. But some of this stuff can help you for now in affecting the reality that you're walking around in. You can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com and welcome to The Reality Revolution. <laughs>